This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Square cut or pear shape. These rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a yeah. girl's best. Well, speaking friend. of diamonds and all things gems, investors definitely taking a shine to shares of Tiffany today. Stocks soaring as LVMH makes an offer. Street seems to think more bids are coming. Ed Hammond is Jill's reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Charlie Bobrinskoy also joining us, vice chairman and head of investment group over at Aerial Investments. They've got about $13.6 billion in assets under management. They own about 250,000 shares of Tiffany and have owned it on and off for a long time. Charlie joins us on the phone from Chicago. Let me start with you, Ed. They'll lay out the deal terms here for us. You broke the story, so you own it. Let's bring well, this up today. At least until today. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so we broke the story over the weekend. Um, what are the deal terms? So look, they've, we know they've made an offer. They made an offer at 120. Um, against Friday's closing price. I think that's a premium of just over 20%. But actually what they're saying is, look, we put in our offer letter on the 14th. And so if you look at it against that, it's a 33% premium, which means that it's not clear they're going to bid higher than this. 120 is obviously a reasonably good premium against when they made the offer. The other thing is, look, they have to cash. Obviously, LVMH is is substantial and wealthy. And it's but, a nice fit. And it's a nice fit. But Bernard Arnault is not one who's known for overpaying. He's very disciplined. He's walked away from deals in the past. The other thing is he's never done a hostile, and I don't think he'll do it here. All right, so Charlie, come on in here. This is a name. Carol and I were talking about this at our desk before we came on the show. You've been looking at this one for a long time. What did you make of it when you saw the headlines cross, and is this a good deal for Tiffany? Yeah, it's a, it's a solid deal. We, we think this is the company that best epitomizes what we look for in an investment. It's got an amazing moat, economic moat around the business, a competitive advantage. We always joke with you and Carol that mm-hmm. when they put that diamond ring in that little blue box, amazingly it becomes worth 25 to 30% more <laughs> just because it's in that box. Uh, Tiffany literally means quality, the Tiffany Network, CBS. So um, we think this is just a wonderful company. This is uh, a fair offer. I wouldn't say they're trying to steal the company, but we think it's worth more than this. Uh, This would probably be about 13 times forward EBITDA, and they've paid a lot more than that for some of their other acquisitions like Bulgari and Harry Winston. So what would it take, Charlie, to tender your shares? What kind of offer are you looking for? Well, I don't want to uh, show you that number exactly because that would be showing our hand. But we do think, let's put it this way, the market agrees with us. Uh, the stock is trading at 129 today. That means the market thinks they're going to offer more than 120. We think if this was a competitive auction, uh, there would be people that would pay more than 120. So I would say um, the the recent high in the stock was 133 in August of, of uh, last year. And I think... Uh, it will go for more than that. And so, Ed, as you look at this particular deal, what does it tell you about this particular space? What does it tell you about sort of the mood right now? I mean, obviously, this is an iconic name, but it is in the luxury space, and we're in a, shall we say, uncertain global environment right Yeah, now. we are, and, and that is potentially why it looks like they could be stealing the company, because it's a company that obviously has a lot of exposure to Asia, a lot of exposure to what's going on there. 
And as you say, luxury spend, although there's some debate among the French about whether or not it's true luxury, because ah. it's not European, you see. Ouch. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> um, so, so look, uh, yes, I think it's, it's an interesting time to do this deal. But even though it's a big number, it's, for OVMH, this is not a huge deal. It's a $220 billion market cap company. They can afford to do this many times over without really losing sleep. I do wonder too, um, Charlie, that, you know, we've talked a lot about Tiffany, uh, you know, kind of trying to embrace a younger consumer. I've got to say my 16 year old, she gets kind of delighted if she gets something from Tiffany. I mean, so I feel like they're making some progress, but I don't know if that's just being in the New York area. I don't know. Um, but what do they yep. need to do, Tiffany, to kind of maintain, you know, the next consumer or bring in the next consumer? Yeah, I think that's the point, Carol, is they're doing a lot of things right now to expand the marketing efforts. They've spent a lot on advertising in the past year, and it is starting to show off. They've introduced some new lines, which are getting some traction. Uh, they're remodeling the flagship store on Fifth Avenue, and that's been down a little bit, and it'll be up when the remodeling is over. And then, frankly, they have had some sales disruptions in Hong Kong. Uh, with all the protests that have been going on there, and that's a very important market for them. So we are expecting them to have about 10% increase in earnings next year, mm. uh, which means if this falls through, that'll be okay. We've got great earnings and a great company behind us. But frankly, I think uh, we're going to see uh, Louis Vuitton increase their offer. Charlie, do you expect others to come into this process, the likes of potentially Richemont or Kering? Always, always hard to say. Uh, I think Louis Vuitton is the biggest, best buyer for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, we in America don't spend as much time talking about this company, but they are obviously a leader in not everything, not just jewelry, uh, but also uh, high-end alcohol, high-end clothing. So this is the best buyer. They have a history of paying good full price. Um, so if you're going to force me to make a prediction, I'll say either uh, L. VMH will be the winner, or they'll decide to remain uh, independent until the new results come through. All right. Well, we'll be watching this closely for sure, and I'm sure bugging you again for your thoughts on this. Charlie Bobrinskoy is vice chairman and head of investment group at REL Investments out in Chicago. They're looking after about $13.6 billion. And Ed, it's such a great point you make about the size and scope of this company. When you said $220 billion, I was like, is he have that right? And I looked, and of course you're right. That's a massive company. But is there another company in the luxury space that should kind of watch out? Yeah, I think. Just quickly. As, as a potential buyer here? No, I, no, no, no. As another target. Oh, well, I mean, look, they, LVMH could go after almost anything. As yeah. They have the scale, they have the financial firepower. And, and the other thing is their shareholders like this. You look at the stock, it reacted well today on this news. Yeah, yeah we should point out LVMH that, right? is, uh, is up. Let me see what it is here in the U.S. Uh, up, uh, yeah, six-tenths of 1%, certainly in the green. And when it reacts positively, that is notable, especially when you're talking about the buyer. Ed Hammond, always good to catch up with you. Deals reporter extraordinaire. He broke the news over the weekend, soon followed and Great confirmed story by the companies involved. We will see where this deal goes next. All right, well, that's a nice little collision of things that we're about to talk about. <laughs> Oliver Twist, it may uh, get a little like that to some extent, yeah. depending on how Brexit goes and what the impact is going to be on the supply chain and elsewhere. This is a great reminder of so many things that we're talking about. Sam Dennigan is the founder and CEO of Strong Roots, based in Ireland. He's got an eye on how Brexit may play through to the food industry. He joins us on the phone from New York City today. Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Hi, Carol. Hi, Jason. Hi. And so 
what's happening in terms of that supply chain? Because things could get bleak there in the UK, depending on how Brexit goes. Help us understand. What isn't happening, I think, would be easier to answer. Um, we've hmm. been in this you know, limbo turmoil for the last few years of trying to figure out what the best play is for making sure that we've got enough stock, making sure that we're relevant in the market, as well as making sure that uh, we can still be profitable and competitive in a time of potential high cost and high risk, especially with, uh, with, the, uh, with the border uh, causing most of the potential risk for us. I know. How do you plan, Sam, in this environment? I mean, we joke about it. I know it's not a joke, and you guys are living it day in and day out. But I feel like headline, you know, and I kid about two steps forward, one step back. I mean, and other votes and so on and so forth and delays, you know, in implementation. So how do you manage a business that way? We were lucky enough in that um, in our first major contract in the UK, moving over from Ireland into the development of the UK market, we actually started on the day of the um, leave announcement. So we've been essentially preparing this, uh, preparing for this since the beginning of the entire conversation. What that's allowed us to do is essentially look at our entire business from packaging to storage to product formulation and make sure that everything for the foreseeable future is going to be enough uh, to make sure that the consumer still has value as well as the fact that our business needs to continue to grow. And help, us, and, and help us understand, Sam, what Strong Roots is, because you're hitting on another sure. really important uh, part of the market that Carol and I spent a lot of time talking about, which is plant-based, fresh food, and as you are alluding to, fresh produce, fresh food in general is really at the most risk here if the supply chain breaks down. So help us understand what you do. Sure. So we're we're a little bit more protected than fresh food. My background has been in fresh food for almost 15 years. Uh, since then, we developed the Strong Roots brand, which is a frozen plant-based brand, which allows us to operate with a little less perishability than normal. One of the biggest issues with the um, uh, customs border, with fresh food in particular, is essentially certification in a non EU trading model. What happens when you get to the border? How much do you have to pay to get it in? Who's certified to bring it in? And what are the issues that are caused by all of those things? Now, we have the same thing in frozen food, but we're slightly insulated in that we have a little bit more shelf life than the usual seven to 10 days of the fresh produce industry. So it can cause um, uh, a lot of problems when things are, you know, reaching their self shelf date uh, in a very quick time. But you do talk about warehouse costs, or from what I understand, they have gone up a lot in the UK as a result of, I guess, is it demand? Is it the Brexit concerns? What is it? Sure. I think uh, as a result of, of uh, uncertainty in the last 12 months of trading, various different companies have started stockpiling different materials right. for different uses, different products for different purposes, in order to make sure that in, in a worst case scenario that any imported product, and bear in mind that over 80% of, of food is imported into Britain, any, any products that need to be there are already there. As a result of that, warehouse costs are being driven up because of um, the lack of supply, and therefore it's becoming very competitive to actually just secure space. So um, 
warehouse costs in particular are at a very high premium at the moment. So, you know, we did a story in the magazine that said, okay, let's let's envision the day after Brexit and how it plays out. And we looked at the borders and we looked at access to food. And initially, because of the stockpiling, um, we reported that it's not going to be a problem. It's just what happens as it lingers on, as there are delays. And you do foresee that. I think it depends on the type of product. I think, um, you know, to go back to your point about fresh, I think fresh is going to be an issue. Uh, Its availability means that people want it fresh. You want to shorten the supply chain as much as possible. So for some of those more delicate items within the fresh produce aisle in particular, with fruits and vegetables, they're very sensitive to being stored for too long. And the consumer doesn't want them stored for too long either. So with with that in particular, I think there's no way that it's not going to cause a problem if there's any delay whatsoever at the customs borders. Right. Um, other food, right. obviously ambient, canned, frozen, etc., is going to be affected less. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Sam Dunnigan is founder and CEO of Strong Roots, based in Ireland, on the phone from New York City today. They've got some new money, relatively new money, $18 million, led by good partners here in New York City. All right, so olive branches of a sort seem to be, they're green, I believe, and that is leading maybe to some green in the market. But let's understand what's actually going on in what arguably will be, Carol, the biggest story of 2019, and that's U.S.-China trade. No I doubt think about it. amid everything else, that stands head and shoulders above when it comes to market sentiment. Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. He's back with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. We're catching him between Beijing trips uh, (laughs) as he prepares for their big conference coming up in a few weeks there in Beijing. He's recently back. He's got a column out. And Andy, this notion of olive branches that feels optimistic. What did you find? It, well, look, it's all relative, okay? Right. I, and, and the background to this, you have to remember, this time last year, Mike Pence, who is the chief flamethrower on China in the White House, delivers this blistering speech at the Hudson Institute where he accuses China of interfering in the U.S. elections, of ripping off U.S. companies, um, you know, and, 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 and basically abandoning any idea, this traditional idea that China should be a responsible stakeholder in the international system. China, according to his formulation, was the adversary, right, the enemy. So the Chinese look at this and they say, my my goodness, this is the start of a new Cold War. And they weren't exactly wrong. It was a very profound shift in America's tone towards China. So everybody's looking at his speech this year. What's what's the encore going to look like? So it's interesting. It's a a speech which, I mean, all of the flame-throwing stuff about human rights and Taiwan is a beacon of freedom for the mainland stood completely Mm -hmm. behind the the democracy protesters uh, in Hong Kong. But interestingly, on the economy, he was, for Pence, relatively, shall we say, mild. Uh, so we don't want to decouple from China. That's important because right. his speech last year really made it look like this was an impossible venture. You know, the two of us just are not going to be doing business together. This year he's like, we won't decouple. Um, we don't seek to contain China. We don't seek confrontation with China. And so what's 
what's the game? And it very, very much seems like the game is the Trump administration needs a trade deal with China, so they have to uh, come across as looking reasonable and at least even not too confrontational. Deal, Andy, even right? if it's a small deal, but Trump has got to cover his flank because being soft on China is also not going to play in the 2020 election. Hence right? Pence's, hence Pence's, excuse me about that, but his criticism of American companies and what they were saying in regards to China. Or no. Right, yeah. So you could read that as being sort of having a go at, at, at or, or, or sort of blaming American companies, not China. Uh, and, and of course, these barbs that he aimed at the NBA, where he, where he says mm-hmm. essentially the NBA is a wholly owned subsidiary of an authoritarian regime. He actually, he actually said that. Nike, you know, kowtowing to China all over the Hong Kong protests which actually puts U.S. businesses in an incredibly uncomfortable position. I right. mean, they really don't know what to do. I mean, if they stay in China, where, you know, for many of them, it's the largest part of their global market. So in, in, in some cases, it's bigger than their U.S. market. They stay in China. They have to tow the government line now. That's increasingly Beijing is insisting on that. But they do that, they're going to get a tongue lashing, you know, from, from, from the White House. Mm. Um, they really are court businesses. U.S. business is a court, a court right in the middle of this now. And so what are they saying to you? What are the CEOs? You're talking to them. Your team is talking to them in part because you're going to put on this big event with a lot of them, these global CEOs. Uh, what are they saying in terms of how they are towing that line? Because we're in the midst of earnings season. It's coming up, I think, mm-hmm. fair to say, on every single earnings call. What are you hearing from them? Is there a playbook or is the playbook just let's gut it out and get through this. <laughs> the, play, the playbook for some of them is, you know, no comment, right? Yeah. Because anything they say is going to get them into trouble either with Beijing or with the White House. But then you have these interesting cases like Facebook where Zuckerberg has been trying for years to get into China. And you know that in order to get into China, Facebook is going to have to compromise its values. It's going to essentially have to do the dirty work of the Chinese Communist Party and censor its platform, yeah. right? They've been negotiating this for a long time, finally Zuckerberg is saying, I've given up, right? I mean, there's more mileage for him in in sort of wrapping himself in righteousness, uh, you know, criticizing, standing for mm-hmm. freedom and against uh, uh, China as a way of deflecting criticism, uh, uh, you know, against Facebook at home over these issues of privacy, um, you know, political manipulation, misinformation, and so on. So for Facebook, now China is, is, is the whipping boy. It's interesting, though, you get into that, okay, so ultimately, if we get some kind of small deal, and so maybe China's buying more agriculture from the United States. The really important issues, and you talk specifically about industrial subsidies, we don't really make any progress on that, do we? No. This, so, so, so Trump is, is, is about to do, and they're, they're working very hard. I mean, we hear this from the U.S. side, hear it from the Chinese side. The two sides are working extremely hard to get a, a, a trade agreement, but a mini trade agreement. They call it phase one right. trade agreement, right? I mean, the implication is there's going to be a phase two and there may be a phase three. Right. As a matter of fact, you know, that, that's all completely up in the air, but it's going to be very limited. And so you talk a lot in your in this column, and we've talked a lot on our show and with you about this notion of decoupling, you know, mm-hmm. and that seems to be sort of the question of our time in many ways. Are we witnessing the decoupling, as it were, of the two 
largest economies in, in the world. And what are the implications for that? Where are we in that sort of decoupling process? And I do wonder if it would have happened, whether it was Trump in the White House or somebody else. Right. So it's becoming increasingly clear that a disorderly decoupling is going to be incredibly bad for both the U.S. and for China. I mean, these two economies are joined at the hip. You take a company like GM, which has more sales in China than, than, mm -hmm. than in the U.S., right? And, and, you know, in the financial crisis, it was China that rescued the, the business. So, you know, decoupling is going to be incredibly messy, very inefficient. If companies have to do R&D in China for products that will be sold in the U.S. in the U.S. market, separate parallel systems in in in, in China, assuming right. a technological decoupling. So you know, sort of where, where I think we're moving towards is an acknowledgement that in some areas there's going to have to be decoupling. But what is the extent of it? And so, so you hear people talking about this concept of, you know, small garden, high walls, right? Yeah. So you identify those parts of technology that you really, really can't give away uh, because of secu national security reasons, and you'll protect that to the death. Uh, but you keep that garden as small as possible. We'll see, where, we'll see how far, how big this garden ends up being. Right. I'm going to make it be quick, five seconds. Would have decoupling happen no matter what at some point? We are going to get decoupling. The only question is the extent. Okay. All right. Andy Thank Brown, editorial quick. director, Bloomberg New Economy, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, doing some shuttle journalism of his own Love between it. here uh, and Beijing these days. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, she's a pretty independent lady, uh, and she's certainly going to have her work cut out for her. We're talking about Christine Lagarde, Madam Christine Lagarde, as she takes over the presidency of the European Central Bank. Writing about it this week is Jana Randau, European economy editor at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, this story, by the way, featured uh, in the magazine. So let's talk about this. Um, she's going to have a full plate from the get-go, Jana. Very much so, very much so. There are a lot of challenges ahead. The economy is not doing very well. Um, Mario Draghi has left her with a huge stimulus package that is about to be implemented in full as she takes office um, at the end of this week. And then uh, she has a governing council, which is uh, quite divided over whether that decision to uh, restart quantitative easing was actually justified. So a lot of things to do uh, in, in the first weeks of our term. And so, Jana, talk to us stylistically about what we've seen from Mario Draghi and what we can expect to see from Christine Lagarde in terms of how they may govern, uh, as it were. Obviously, it's a different economy that uh, Madame Lagarde is taking over than what uh, Mario Draghi had when he assumed the role. But how, how are their approaches different in your estimation? Thinking about it, if you think about Mario Draghi, he is a PhD economist uh, with with a degree from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, studied under Nobel laureates. So he is probably the smartest economy the, uh, economist that the ECB has seen. Now uh, he will will come to the table uh, in a very different fashion than than Christine Lagarde, a trained lawyer. Um, Draghi thought about uh, policy for a very long time. He probably didn't need a whole lot of people to tell him what to do. Um, so he was 
usually quite convinced of the proposals that he put on the table. And um, it was sometimes very hard to convince him otherwise, which is one reason why you saw um, controversy in the council, why you saw fights, um, different opinions, that sort of thing. Uh, Christine Lagarde um, is expected to take a different approach, come to the table with pretty much an open mind, listen to this side, listen to that side, and and try and find a compromise between all those uh, all those officials, and then uh, take a decision based on based on the arguments and not so much on the conviction that she brings to the table. I do feel like, too, Janos, this is somebody who understands diplomacy and diplomatic solutions and also understands politics. And that is maybe exactly um, what the ECB needs right now. And you, you, in fact, say the ECB needs a bit of shine after a decade of crisis fighting has pushed it to its limits and that there are scars that Draghi is leaving behind at, at the institution. Very much so. Um, in the sense Draghi's, if I had to tell one flaw uh, in, in Draghi's presidency, then it probably is that in terms of communicating with the public, in terms of reaching out, being accessible, being visible, uh, giving interviews, he could have done somewhat better. And I think that is uh, Christine Lagarde's strength. Uh, she is a woman of the people. She she uh, really goes out. She reaches out. She's, she's approachable and accessible. Um, she's she has a presence when 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 she's there and i think i think that that is what the institution needs and in terms of uh, her uh, political sense uh, it was very clear today at the ecb um, we had a handover ceremony and the topic was very much we need fiscal policy and we need governments to come and help the ecb in their efforts to rekindle growth to stoke inflation and well, Christine Lagarde, obviously, being a finance minister or former finance minister of France, um, being the former head of the IMF, she knows how to talk to politicians uh, probably better than anyone else at the moment. Well, and Yana, to that exact point, I mean, she's coming to this job from Washington, where she has seen American politics up close and personal and had to deal with that in a way that maybe uh, Mr. Draghi has not. How much in hand or how how much handy will that come in uh, when she has to deal with some of the big decisions when it comes to the ECB? Certainly, uh, the two of them have moved in slightly different circles over the past years. Draghi is very much um, your, um, your economist, uh, a central banker, a technocrat, if you want. Not that he doesn't have any diplomatic skills. He, he's very good in negotiating, very good in talking to leaders. He's forged very close relationships with with the German Chancellor, for example, but it is uh, different uh, to what Lag- uh, what Christine Lagarde has been doing over the past years. Uh, also, dealing with very different kinds of people, um, doing you know dealing with with African governments on on the one hand, and then with with the Greek government, uh, Latin America. So she she's had a much yeah. broader focus over the past years. And right. I think that will that will help. Well, I got to say, I love how you end your story. I'm not going to give it away. People are going to have to go to Bloomberg.com or check it out on the Bloomberg because it uh, gives you some insight into who Christine Lagarde is and how she views things. Uh, Yana Randau, thank you so much. European Economy Editor at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Frankfurt, Germany. I'm driving in my car. 
I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Ryan Dietrich, senior market strategist for LPL Financial. They're looking after about $706 billion down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Ryan, they you, say it's your birthday. They say it's your birthday, but last time it was your son's birthday that you were with us, Ryan. And so we're thinking that this may be one of those things where it's like you go to Bennigan's and you tell them it's your birthday <laughs> so that you'll get the ice cream sundae. Is that true? Is that what's going on well, here? You, you know, it is amazing. It was my son's birthday last time I was on on September 19th. But I will say I got some donuts this morning, and I did tell them. I said, hey, today's my birthday, and they gave me two free donuts for that. So I did use the birthday card, but I'm not lying. It really All right. is my birthday. Hey, donut today. place, if he says it's his birthday tomorrow, you <laughs> yeah, know what's exactly, going on. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah, the, what's, the, what's the local donut place in Charlotte? We're going to call them. Yeah. They like me. I'm a, I'm a regular. Okay. That's good. That's good. All right. So what are you seeing in the markets today, uh, birthday boy? We've got, you know, the little green on the screen here owing to some trade optimism. Are we still right to be thinking that trade sort of back and forth is driving this market in, in broad brushstrokes? Well, Jason, you know, we do think so. I mean, let's be honest. You know, we're making new all-time highs as we speak for the first time in three months. And is it really because trade is resolved? No, absolutely not. You know, this is just phase one, as we know, and there's still a long way to go. And Brexit, Brexit got punted as well into next year. So really, it's almost like both of those big worries are kind of being pushed back a little bit, not as concerning. But trade specifically, the fact that it's calmed down so much, like we're not in a recession. The economy is not great. We are fully aware. But the big worry that we had a year ago right now was, hey, the Fed's going to be hiking. We're going into a recession. Now the Fed is easing, and we're not in a recession. So with trade kind of moving the right way, that's why we're at all-time highs, not just here, right? Germany's 52-week highs. Switzerland's at highs. Sweden's at highs. I mean, Brazil's at all-time highs. This is a global phenomenon. A lot of markets are going up, right? Making new highs. That's a good thing, I believe. It's a good thing. Does it last, though, at this point? Well, that's a big question, Carol. We do think there's some legs to it. You know, the other big thing this week, right, the Fed. The Fed in all likelihood is going to cut 25 basis points for the third time in a row this Wednesday after hiking rates nine times. We look back at history. When the Fed does 25 basis point cuts three times in a row like that in 1998, 1995, and 1970, or 1975 was the other time, those three times, the S&P is up 10% on average six months later, 20% on average uh, one year later. Now, I get it, small sample size. Still, there's that don't fight the Fed. The Fed is easing. That's another factor that really needs to be played in here, and we think it's just another tailwind, really, for this overall bull market that still has legs. All right. So in some of the notes that you sent along before joining us, you pointed out that there is a shot that we could get stocks, gold, oil and bonds all up 10 percent or more this year. That's never happened before. That's right, guys. You know, that's exactly right. Now, last year, let's go, if we want to talk about last year for a second, stocks and bonds were down for the first time, both those asset classes together, since 1969. So last year was a really rough year where virtually nothing was higher. 
Now this year, everything's up, and bonds have a shot at being up 10%. Now, by bonds, I'm talking about the 10-year Treasury. Uh, but still, bonds have had a good year. Stocks, of course, up 20%. Oil's up over 20%, and gold's up 16 17%. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is just coming back from that rough fourth quarter that we saw last year. But still, this has been a really nice year, clearly. And then I mentioned globally. I mean, gee whiz. Wait a minute. Yeah. All right. So if stocks are up, gold is up, oil's up, bonds up, that doesn't necessarily make sense, right? Because usually if stocks are up, bonds are down, uh, gold often seen as a safe haven. Right. Um, I understand stocks and oil being up together because stocks are growing up if there's optimism about the economic outlook. Um, so explain it to me because to me it just sounds like really, really cheap money and investors just looking for yield in all different types of asset classes. It's not necessarily trading on fundamentals. No, you're right. And let's not forget the U.S. dollar, right? U.S. dollar has been mm-hmm. strong for the most part this year. But I think it is a function of more last year. All four of those were down last year for the first time in history. So, you know, it's more of a, okay, now we're kind of bouncing back. But it is very unique. I mean, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, as Mark Twain told us. And it's, it's very unique where we're seeing what we're seeing this year. But when you put in the factor of last year, they all were down. Maybe it's not quite as rare. But when you only have an instance one time in history, it's tough to make any major takeaways in our view. But Still, stocks are out of those four. We still like stocks probably the most, though, for the continuation, in our opinion. And, you know, we've still got a lot of uh, earnings to hear this week. Some big names are going to get a couple after the bell, uh, sort of two different names in many ways, Beyond Meat uh, and Alphabet. But we have been digesting earnings so far. Anything that you're picking up in terms of themes that make you either more confident, less confident, cautious, or optimistic about the balance of the year? No, I would say we're just kind of comfortable with it, Jason. And when you look at the third quarter, we're going to have probably negative year-over-year earnings, maybe by 2 or 3% when all is said and done. Now, the good news is that's what a year ago is when the economy really peaked, right? So the estimates going forward are going to be against a weaker economy. And if you look at next year, you know, this is when earnings should accelerate the fourth quarter. We think there's a shot. We can have, you know, 6 7% earnings growth next year. That's not spectacular. But that is right in line with the long-term average. It'll be better than what we're seeing this year on earnings. So, again, and look at emerging markets. We, I've come home with you guys for a while saying we do like emerging markets. They've quietly outperformed the last four months. Emerging markets potentially can see double-digit earnings growth next year in 2020, and their GDP is close to 5%. So if you think this global economy still has life and this bull market has life, we like the U.S., but emerging markets is a place we are positioning some of our models for our advisors. Well, they've definitely lagged, um, if you look at the global, the world markets, uh, right. the big markets, uh, just looking at the MSCI indexes, uh, world big developed markets are up about 18 almost 19%. We're looking at about an 8% gain in emerging markets. There is so much enthusiasm, Ryan, in your voice. I know you got extra donuts this morning. I know it's your birthday. I kind of get, I get it. But I mean, what's the big risk here? Because I just feel like, I don't know. It just sounds to you like you think everything is pretty rosy. Well, yeah, I've been coming on for a while saying that. And you mentioned Rosie. You know, look at the Barron's cover over the weekend, right? That Barron's big money poll, lowest number of bulls we've seen in 20 years. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people are not optimistic. I mean, now, one thing that we wrote this in our weekly market commentary that we just released, we did like a trick-or-treat Halloween theme. And one thing that can trick us up 
is very well a Fed policy mistake, right? I mean, the Fed on Wednesday, if they say, hey, you know, we're going to continue, we're going to stop cutting rates here and everything's great with the economy, market might not like that. Now, we think one more cut is very likely, and that's probably going to be it. But could the Fed, that's what shook us up a year ago, right? The Fed said long way from neutral. And that started off the domino effect to a really rough fourth quarter. So maybe a potential Fed policy mistake. We really think U.S. and China, though, is going the right direction. Uh, we think some type of potential path to resolution can be the case. It's probably more the Fed um, that could trip us up in our view. All right. We're going to leave it there. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist for LPL Financial, joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. I hope you have a great birthday, and we'll look forward to celebrating someone else's birthday the next time you're on with us. Maybe it's going to be Carol's. Apparently, Carol pulls that uh, Bennigan's trick all I the time. I actually don't do it. Well, but do you, though? But occasionally, we've been off a day or so, and then we just go oh, on. Oh, so that's not like, so bad. close-ish to my birthday. Not that desperate, Kelly. <laughs> we'll just see. Saying. Oh, out. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.